0: The two greatest speakers in ancient Athens were seen to be Isocrates and Demosthenes, both seen as brilliant orators, really able to engage their audiences, but with one crucial difference between them. And the Athenians characterized that difference as this. When Isocrates sat down after speaking, people said, how well he speaks. But when Demosthenes sat down after speaking, people said, he's right. Let's go and attack the Macedonians. Which of those do you think you are as a speaker? Hello, I'm Adam Morgan, and this is the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish, a series of conversations with people whose skill it is to make apparently dull subjects interesting and see what we can learn from them ourselves for the moments when we can't afford to bore the audience. In exploring how to present a topic or an idea in a more interesting way, I was very intrigued both by rhetoric and in that distinction between Isocrates and Demosthenes, That's distinction between simply speaking well and actually motivating and moving the audience to do something. I was interested in rhetoric because it was the first formalisation, certainly in the Western world, two and a half thousand years ago about how to make speaking more engaging, and I wondered what there might still be there for us to learn from today. What have we forgotten today about how to make something more interesting and compelling that the ancients knew? And I was interested in the distinction between those two kinds of speaker and effect because surely the reason we all want to make our business, our brand, ourselves more interesting is to have more of an impact, to increase our agency. But today's guest, Dr Arlene Holmes Henderson, opened my eyes to an entirely new kind of value, to the ability to frame something in a more engaging and compelling way. So far, we've heard from guests who pointed to different kinds of commercial and educational value of making something more interesting. Arlene's view, as we'll come on to see, is that the ability to speak more engagingly is fundamental to full participation as a citizen in a democratic society, and indeed more than that, to the citizen's health and well-being. That rhetoric has something of a bad reputation, certainly in the media today, but can and should be seen as a force for good, and used as a force for good. Arlene is the Professor of Classics Education and Public Policy at the University of Durham, and besides being a classic teacher, She's been one of the foremost advocates in Britain for oracy, which, as she'll explain, is teaching children to be able to express themselves well and, through that, having the confidence to use their voice. Oracy in itself isn't necessarily about making what you're saying more interesting, but Arlene's proposal that rhetoric should be a key component of it is to help children leaving school be not simply clear, but engaging, compelling, heard. Important for all young people, and particularly important for those from socioeconomically deprived backgrounds or disadvantaged communities, to enable them to represent themselves well and to be able to tell when they're being verbally manipulated by others. These are topics really getting some momentum in the UK at the moment. There's a big article around Arlene's views on the value of a rhetorical toolbox for children that aired in The Guardian in June, and two days after the conversation was recorded with Arlene, Sir Keir Starmer announced he was putting oracy at the heart of the Labour Party's educational policy in the UK should they get elected. And while the conversation that follows is very much about children and education, let's have a broader picture in our mind. Let's think about it potentially as how it might help give all of us the ability to participate more fully and influentially in the professional and social communities that we're part of. We're going to start with talking to Arlene about why RSC and rhetoric matters. And then in the last 10 minutes of the podcast, Arlene is going to give us a gift, a rhetorical toolbox of our own, usable frameworks and devices, 2,000 years old, that can make us more engaging communicators today and ones that inspire action. So let's meet Arlene. Arlene, fantastic to have you with us. Let's start off by looking at why rhetoric was important in the classical worlds and indeed where it came from in the first place.
1: Sure. So rhetoric was born out of the transition from military prowess deciding who had power and property to these things being decided by who had the ability to stand up and argue for it. And so from the Greek world into the Roman world, the ability to self-express eloquently, articulately and effectively became really important.
0: And who were the kind of the most famous proponents of of rhetoric that you still think are are relevant to us today?
1: There are lots of people who wrote about rhetoric in the ancient world. I guess the kind of key thinkers that listeners might be interested in are Demosthenes, Isocrates, Aristotle, Plato, not a fan, um, and in the Roman world, Cicero and Quintilian.
0: Fabulous. Thank you. And um Arlene has very kindly put a little synthesis of a couple of those for us at the end of this piece. So we'll come back to those later on. So what is it about rhetoric that you think is useful for a teenager today?
1: So rhetoric, as conceived by the ancients, was simply a framework for effective spoken communication. And I think that all young people deserve access to an education which provides them with the skills to be effective speakers and listeners in society. Is rhetoric the only way to do this? I would say no, there are lots of ways to become effective as speakers and listeners in society. But I think rhetoric is a fantastic launch pad to be able to do that. And I think that's for two reasons. First reason, it is a framework which has been in existence for 2000 years. If it ain't broke, why fix it? <laughs> and secondly, it teaches not only the construction of argument, it also teaches the deconstruction of Of argument and so it equips young people yes with the critical thinking skills of being able to construct an argument but it teaches them critical literacy skills of deconstructing an argument it helps them to read between the lines and when we think about preparing these young people for life beyond school I want young people to be citizens who can look at an article or listen to a news broadcast and get to the crux of The information, reading between those lines, is the language being used to persuade them? Are there linguistic tricks being used? Are there gestures being used by the speaker in order to manipulate how they feel about this topic? And I think rhetoric is a fantastic pathway to help them do that.
0: I think it's a really important point. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Tell us a little bit about oracy and how that is. uh, What's the overlap between oracy and rhetoric?
1: So oracy is new. And rhetoric is old. <laughs> so oracy as a term was coined in 1965 by an academic called Andrew Wilkinson. And it was invented to fill the gap between literacy, numeracy, and this other part of the curriculum which didn't exist yet, which was a focus on speaking and listening. So oracy is the term. And of course it comes from Latin for the the word for a mouth or, or the voice. So, um, The term oracy is new, rhetoric is very old, it goes back to the Greeks and Romans and even before that, if we think about world rhetorics. And so for me, the overlap is very obvious. Classical rhetoric is one pathway to providing a high quality oracy education for young people and members of the community at large in the 21st century. And what I think it offers beyond other pathways into oracy is the fact that it links two things. It links effective speaking and active listening and preparation for being a citizen in society. And so for me, it's a two for one. Everyone loves a two for one, right? Uh,
0: absolutely. And one of the things I think you've argued very compellingly, uh, along with some of your kind of fellow advocates for this, is that... Oracy is particularly valuable to disadvantaged or disenfranchised communities to allow them to articulate their position and engage in a very compelling way with the world around them on it. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so there's lots of research that's been done on this. Um, Some was done in partnership with the all-party parliamentary group for Oracy, a group of... um, Lords from the House of Lords and MPs from the Houses of Parliament. Um, And I was very involved with the Speak for Change inquiry, which which the all-party parliamentary group for Orsi ran. And I was involved when I was at the University of Oxford at the time and getting funding to run uh, a research project exactly on this. So what we see is that young people who um, come from socioeconomically deprived backgrounds or young people who um, have English as an additional language or young people who have special educational needs and disabilities, these young people respond particularly positively to RSA becoming a whole school development priority. We know that these are the young people who have very significant gaps in attainment at key milestones throughout school and the RSA helps them catch up. We also know that during the pandemic, some children fell much further behind in terms of attainment than other students, and so where I work now, Durham University. Um, students in the northeast of England fell twice as far behind during the pandemic than students in London and the southeast. And so I'm running a new project with colleagues at Durham called Shy Barons Get now And this project is all about helping young people and teachers across the northeast of England to find and use their voice successfully because we know that some communities have access to high, qual- high quality oracy at home and at school and others don't. And so what we're seeking to do is to level the playing field as much as we can as a group of four academics in classics, psychology, English and education.
0: So it's helping them be confident enough to articulate their arguments compellingly to get what they need in in a world that isn't necessarily going to give it to them otherwise.
1: Yeah I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is being aware of social norms and having explicit training in what good listening looks like and having the opportunity to try out lots of scenario based learning before they encounter it in the real world and I think this is useful for all students. But what we see is students who attend certain well-funded schools or certain schools in um, geographically advantaged parts of the country get access to this automatically and others don't. And I personally don't think that's fair. And so I'm working with stakeholders across the education community to try and level up.
0: And you were part of a, a group looking at a sort of fantastically interesting range of experiments from Slovenia to Scotland to Norway. Tell us a little bit about those experiments in Orsi and what you think their kind of success has been.
1: Yeah, so I I worked as part of a a partnership project with colleagues in Slovenia and Norway, mostly because I was interested to know what other countries were doing from a policy perspective in terms of prioritising Oracy education. And so listeners will hear from my accent, I am Scottish, and I was a high school teacher in Scotland for many years and was an advisor to the, the um, curriculum reform group, um, which uh, thought quite carefully about the role of oracy in Scotland's curriculum for excellence. So my work with um, my colleague in Slovenia, I found incredibly interesting, mostly because Rhetoric, and by that I mean specifically classical rhetoric, so the Roman rhetorical method, is a compulsory part of the primary school curriculum in Slovenia. And the fact that a national government thought from 2018 onwards that this should be a priority for its young pupils really interested me. So I contacted my um, Slovenian colleague Janja Smak in Ljubljana and we got together and had a chat. But then at a conference, we met another colleague, um, Anna Greta Kaldal from Oslo in Norway. And it turns out Norway is doing something interesting at the other end of education. So for um, school leavers in Norway. A compulsory part of the uh, school leaving qualifications is an assessed oracy component. So teachers have to assess young people's oracy skills. And this is not part of the academic component of the curriculum. Instead, it's part of health and wellbeing. So the Norwegian government think that being able to self-express effectively is directly linked to young people's and citizens, health and wellbeing. And so I brought my perspective from Scotland where Oracy um, is part of the curriculum and uh, speaking and listening are developed across all curriculum subjects at various levels. And we did a comparative article for a Literacy Journal. Again, this is freely accessible online. Anybody who's interested can follow up, but it was illuminating to see the diverse approaches taken to Orsi in international contexts. And for sure, I think there are things that England can learn.
0: Fascinating, thank you. Do you agree that um, it should be considered part of health and well-being?
1: I do think that it should be part of health and well-being because I think that the ability to feel listened to and feel heard is directly linked to the ability to speak in a way... <laughs> which um, enables you to engage with an audience in such a way that they want to listen and hear you is absolutely crucial to young people building confidence and self-esteem. And I think that's linked very clearly to health and wellbeing. But I actually think that oracy, education and rhetoric as part of that is much broader than just health and wellbeing. I think it has really obvious links to employability i think it has really obvious links to english i think it has really obvious links to learning and teaching principles across the curriculum so i think slovenia's approach of putting this into primary education is very interesting because if we get this right when students are younger then surely this will stimulate Uh better professional learning for teachers across the transition phase from primary to secondary and it will simply become a normal part of education from primary into secondary and then further education and the dream is that some of these approaches are used in higher education but as somebody in higher education I would say we're some way off that right now.
0: And and your obvious passion for this Is it purely professional or is there a kind of a personal link to this as well? Why are you so engaged with this topic and and being such a wonderful advocate for it?
1: For me, this is a social justice issue. For me, this is about helping young people fulfil their potential and giving them the opportunity to learn different ways of finding and using their voice. And I am not for one minute saying that rhetoric, classical rhetoric, the Greeks and Romans are the only or indeed the best way to do this. I'm simply saying that as an academic, I perceive currently that there is not a level playing field for young people who want to learn how to communicate effectively. We know that 7% of the nation's young people are educated in independent schools. Almost all of them have high quality oracy education involving things like debating societies involving training for public speaking involving mock interviews for employment or for university admission but what about the 93% what about the 93% who are in state maintained schools some of whom have fantastic high quality oracy education either because they're working with a range of providers some of whom I've mentioned already either because they have teachers who are completely passionate really engaged and want to do the very best for the young people or maybe they don't have access to this stuff so i guess you know you asked about my um, motivation for doing this my motivation for doing this is because i think everybody deserves to learn about this stuff it's their choice whether they want to use it or not but i think everybody deserves the chance to learn and at the moment we're not in that situation so I feel that I have knowledge to share and energy to give. And so working in collaboration with others is the best way to change that situation.
0: Very, very interesting. And, and how does one teach RSC in a way that, that helps young people find their voice rather than a voice they feel they should be using in RSC?
1: So I think there are two really important elements here. Um, one is accent and the other is dialect. So it's definitely the case that some people perceive oracy to be the same as received pronunciation or um, speaking the Queen's English, or the King's English. And I don't buy into that at all. So as a proud Glaswegian, you will hear (laughs) that I have retained my accent. And I absolutely think that young people can and should be taught to find and use their own voice and be proud of their accent We know that accent bias and accent discrimination is a thing, but I think that's on the listener, not on the speaker. So we, uh, from my perspective, need to embrace and champion regional accents. The second thing is dialect. And again, it's absolutely the case that some people perceive oracy to be a synonym for standard English. And I don't think that's helpful at all. I think oracy can again, embrace and champion the use of young people's regional dialects. Neil Mercer has done a lot of work on this and Ian Cushing is doing brilliant work and has uh, released several publications on the importance of embracing young people's um, linguistic identities. And so I fully agree that we need to work with the young people, their linguistic cultures, their geographical locations, and RSC Education can embrace all of these things, it is not one size fits all. and I think it's really important that um, young people are supported to find and use their voice, not someone else's voice that they've been told sounds better.
0: I was very interested in your point about uh, giving people the ability to tell when they're being bullshitted to. So um, I came across a piece on Twitter actually, somebody had been reading a, a paragraph from the speech that JFK had been planning to deliver in Dallas in 1963, before he was shot. And in part of this speech, he was going to say, we cannot expect that everyone will talk sense to the people, but we can hope that fewer people will listen to nonsense, which is the kind of thing you're talking about, right? That The the nonsense disguised through flowery and elegant words as something more substantive. We can hope that they will be able to see through that in some kind of way.
1: I think rhetoric is, um, I'm not going to describe it as a vaccination, but I think it it does definitely help people build a toolbox i think they 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 find themselves equipped with a rhetorical toolbox and what this toolbox helps them to do is construct communication deconstruct communication and part of the deconstructing of communication involves being able to identify misinformation disinformation malinformation all all of these things which are kind of currently being labeled fake news so i think this awareness, this critical awareness that rhetoric gives you to deconstruct the communication of others is exactly what 21st century citizens need in this era of fake news. We were told that it wasn't a pandemic, it was an infodemic. In an infodemic, you need rhetoric.
0: You could argue if you play that out that actually that toolbox of rhetoric is more urgently necessary now than it was two and a half thousand years ago. With the advent of fake news and misinformation and a digital world where that spreads very quickly, your ability to see through that and dissect what is substantive and what is not substantive is more important now than ever.
1: I think that's absolutely right. And certainly the conversations I've had with school leaders and subject leaders in schools have included aha moments where these school leaders and subject leaders in schools have been saying, wow, I can see now that we're being taken for fools. We are being presented with this information, but actually applying these techniques that we've been taught via rhetoric helps us see that this is just all misinformation. This is just all fake. This is just, this actually isn't news.
0: Let's come back to citizenship. One of the points you've made that I was very engaged by was the thought that actually, look, there's a basic level of citizenship, which is to do with certain basic kind of rights and and obviously the the ability to vote, uh, which we'll call a minimal uh, kind of engagement with citizenship. But actually, one of the advantages of Oracy for you is actually it enables a much more maximal participation in citizenship. Tell us a little bit about the difference between those two and why you think that's true.
1: Yeah, so I wrote about this 10 years ago now and... I think it's still true today that some educational policies describe citizenship in minimal terms. So that is, you know, we're teaching young people to be citizens and what we want them to do is abide by the rules, not get arrested by the police. If they are really very into being good citizens, they might pick up some litter every so often. That's what we mean by minimal citizenship. And I think that's cop-out. I think society needs citizens, particularly young citizens, to do much more than just Uh not get arrested and sometimes pick up some litter. So the more maximal description or conception of citizenship has some disruptive and difficult elements where citizens question the status quo, where citizens feel empowered to take action against things which they feel are not just or which need to be changed. And in order to do that, I argue, they need to be able to use their voice effectively. Of course, they need to be able to write effectively because some of this is not just about speaking up. Some of this is about writing letters to the right people or using social media effectively. This is about digital literacy. It's about functional literacy. It's about critical literacy, but I think it's also about oracy. We need young people who are going to... Organize protests, who are going to stand to be MPs, who are going to be the Greta Thunbergs to be able to find and use their voice, in addition to being active and critical listeners. Listening is just as important for citizenship as speaking. And so for me, we need to be aiming much closer to the maximal end of the citizenship spectrum. In reality, most schools will um, help young people get somewhere on that spectrum between minimal and maximal. But my suggestion is that together as a educational community, as a policy community, we need to be equipping young people with the skills that they need to target closer to the maximal end.
0: Tell us a little bit about why you think uh, the word rhetoric today often has negative associations.
1: So I've asked a lot of people about rhetoric. I'm just very interested when I meet people um, to, to hear what their initial response is when I say the word rhetoric. Like, what do you think? And so I ask young people, I ask teachers, I ask charity representatives, I ask random people. Um, and, and usually they say empty rhetoric or they say um, spin or they say... All words no substance, which I completely get because I think that's that's the meaning of the word that's used in broadcasting, so when you watch the news, often um, news readers will talk about a politician's rhetoric, referring to the fact that, you know, they were just um, skirting around the real issue by uh, using clever words to divert attention away from what they should actually be talking about. It's just all empty rhetoric. And I think that's really unfortunate because I think it has contributed to this bad reputation for rhetoric. I think that rhetoric can be a force for good, but there is quite a lot of um, perception shifting that has to be done in order to improve rhetoric's PR and image. Um, And one way I think that we can do that is to demonstrate more effectively the rest of what rhetoric means. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think starting with educators is a really sensible place to do that because if young people understand that there's more to rhetoric than just empty words then the hope is that you know they then become the citizens of tomorrow and they can go out and use rhetoric effectively and responsibly.
0: And you're obviously a, a considerable speaker yourself. How consciously are you using in the, in the public speaking that you do?
1: I use it quite consciously in the public speaking that I do. Um, Mostly openings and endings, I think quite carefully about them because I know that people's attention is greatest at the beginning and at the end. Their attention tends to kind of fade in the middle and that's why rhetorical devices are really useful because it makes people sit up and listen in the middle. Um, But I tend to put quite a lot of thought into the beginning and ending of presentations that I give. So for example, um, last month I spoke at the British Academy Summer Showcase. I was given 10 minutes with an audience of press and parliamentarians. I don't usually speak at events at that level. So um, for me, this was an exciting opportunity, but it was also a little bit terrifying because I thought, what do you say when you've got 10 minutes to talk about how to win an argument? So... Yeah, I started with a joke, um, which is a quite a high risk thing to do because you don't know it's gonna be funny and you've got to know the cultural context and all of this stuff, Um, but it went well and that's great. Um, And then I thought quite carefully about the end. And for me, the end of that particular presentation was a call to action. So what I really wanted was those people who I perceived to be power brokers, people who had the potential to have some influence over the state of, oracy education in particularly in England, but more widely in the UK, I wanted them to take what they had learned about the importance of rhetoric in winning arguments to the next level. I wanted them to um, feel aligned to my suggestions that I had made about the value and importance of rhetoric, but to do something with that, to actually uh, help me take the work that I'm doing to policy communities and to practice communities so that together we might help more young people find and use their voice. And I got a round of applause, so I think it was okay.
0: (laughs) Very good. Very good. Um, So do you think it's true to say that you can't speak really well unless you can also listen very well?
1: I think it is possible to speak well without listening well, because... They're different things. So speaking can be one-sided. It can be public speaking rather than dialogic or debating where listening is absolutely essential. Is it possible to be a good citizen by only being able to speak well? I would say no. I would say in order to be a responsible, active, participatory citizen in the 21st century, you need to be able to both speak and listen well. What "well" looks like and how that's defined is obviously up for debate, but I think rhetoric can help.
0: And is the study of listening been given the same degree of sort of codification and depth of understanding that oracy is? Do you think?
1: I think that's a great question, and I'm delighted to say that I'm working with a colleague in Durham on this project, shy Burns Getting Out, where uh, unusually a classicist is working with an education expert, an English expert, and a psychologist. And my psychology colleague, Thomas von Johnson, is a specialist in exactly this. So he works with a team of people who research listening and uh, they look at the tonal variation of people's voice and how that impacts listeners' perceptions and also how persuasive speakers are using various voice tones. And so this is a project in which I will learn a great deal. This is not something I currently know very well, but our aim is to learn from each other and then to put together a package of training and resources for teachers and young people in schools across the northeast of England.
0: Tell us a little bit more about... Actio and gesture in rhetoric.
1: Yeah, so actio is the fifth canon of speech. It's a fancy way of saying before you deliver your speech, you have to think about the performance. You have to think about what you're going to do with your body. So we know from contemporary research, from anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists, that about somewhere between 65 and 70% of communication is delivered non-verbally. So body language is very important. And although this percentage and this research is new, actually the concept is very old. So there was a Roman schoolmaster called Quintilian in the first century CE, who wrote a series of books about rhetoric and about oratory. And in the 11th of these books, he wrote a handbook all about gesture. And so he said that when you are practicing your speech, Of course, it's important to think about the tone of your voice, the variation of your voice, the way in which you connect with your audience in terms of eye contact. But it's also really important to think about your body language. So don't stand in one place. It's good to move around because that helps you connect with the extremities of your audience. It's also good to think carefully about what you do with your hands because for certain of the points that you are delivering it will be important to be completely still so if you're saying something very serious or somewhere where you want people to listen to hold on your every single syllable of every single word don't move you have to stay still but if for example you want to express wonder and you want your audience to feel amazed then you should slowly unfurl the fingers of your right hand from a fist Into a wave. Uh, He has lots of other suggestions about gestures and uh, the use of, particularly the use of hands. And I think looking at the Italians today, they are people who are known for using gesticuli gestures. And I think some of this is done instinctively. So if you look at Italian politicians, they often instinctively use exactly the gestures that Quintilian advises at exactly the points that he would say in a speech you should be using these. The thing is, they can be learned. So it's all there, he wrote it down, it's freely accessible online. Is it still valid today? Well, the speechwriters who have a classics background get their primaries to use these gestures. Are we being taken in by them? Probably. Should you know about them? Definitely, because then you can decide, I see what he's doing there. Ah, oh, she's doing that because she knows that that's going to make me feel, and therefore you're being taken in. But you're not being taken in if you know about them in advance.
0: And do you use gestures yourself?
1: <laughs> I do use gestures. Um, I think I probably don't use gestures as consciously. <laughs> as probably I should as somebody who teaches and writes about rhetoric. <laughs> but I'm just generally a very expressive person, so I find it very hard to stay still, and I find it very hard to um, not wave around the place. I'm kind of known for my jazz hands.
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. So imagine imagine you're at a dinner party. You've been invited round by some friends. You've just moved to Durham, as you have. You've been invited round by some people you don't know particularly well. You're seated next to two complete strangers you'll find it quite difficult to get the conversation going. What could you use from your rhetorical toolbox to start having a more interesting conversation with a neighbour on your right?
1: So I think a way of making things more exciting is to ask them about themselves. Ask them, um, so what did you do today? Or what was the last dinner party you were at? Uh. And part of this is to help the speaker build the relationship with their audience. Now, this is slightly different because it's not argumentation based. You don't have a point to prove, but this is about relationship building and anybody who is effective as a speaker needs to know their audience. You need to start with the audience. So before you think about your pathos or uh, before you think about your ethos or your logos, I would prioritize pathos. And so I would be interested in them. And once you know about them and where they're coming from and where they're at, then you can think about what you might want to say to them
0: that's fascinating so you wouldn't start with actually introducing something interesting that you're passionate about you have to start with a relationship and understanding them to understand how to make that connection in the right way from a rhetorical point of view
1: and I think that's exactly it Adam I think it's about finding a connection connections are so important when it comes to being effective as a communicator and so establishing what the connections are, where they might be, whether they're firm or whether they're loose, then provides a launch pad for moving on to something more substantive.
0: Wonderful. Okay, and just pulling it all together, so what three bits of advice would you give to somebody who wanted to present their case more compellingly using the principles of rhetoric or indeed oracy?
1: First and foremost, think about the emotions. Think about how you want your audience to feel. Once you've thought about how you want your audience to feel... Tailor your argumentation, your logos, tailor your credibility and how the audience can interact with you, your ethos accordingly. But first of all, think about that emotional connection and how you want them to feel. Secondly, Think carefully about introductions and conclusions. It's really important in these key sections to grab people's attention. Fizzling out is the worst thing you can do. So there has to be a punchy ending. And thirdly, I would suggest that people have a browse through the rhetorical devices, which were popular in Roman times, but have remained popular since then and are used extensively by people like Shakespeare and Byron and poets and authors throughout the ages, because you might just find some inspiration there for something that you want to say next.
0: It's fascinating and you're wonderfully compelling, Arlene, as as I'm I'm sure you know, but um, it's really refreshing to hear a voice like yours in a slightly jaded kind of world at the moment.
1: That's very kind of you to say so.
0: So good to meet you. Thanks very much indeed.
1: You too, thank you.
0: Reflecting afterwards on the conversation with Arlene, I was reminded forcefully of the view uh, that we heard in the very first episode of the psychoanalyst Stephen Gross, that being dull was a form of exclusion. And so if you played this out, that giving people the rhetorical toolbox to make themselves more engaging and effective speakers was therefore one way to enable them to include themselves as active participators in a democracy. But also it seems to me has quite profound implications for us if we want to create greater inclusion within a company for instance or any kind of community can we really do that without helping people have the tools to express their voice and indeed looking beyond our own companies or communities what might it potentially mean for those of us with outward facing csr programs supporting greater inclusivity and social mobility in the world around us and i really hope arlene might have awakened your interest. To seeing how having a rhetorical toolbox of your own might make you a more interesting speaker to your own audience. And if it has, you're in for a treat. Arlene puts a lot of emphasis on the importance of beginnings and endings in a speech, how those are disproportionately important in the success of a piece of communication. And we've got a very big finish for you, a 10-minute masterclass with Arlene on three key ideas from classical rhetoric that you can use yourself. I'm Adam Morgan, and this has been the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish, and this is your very own Rhetorical Toolbox. Now Arlene is going to share with us three key rhetorical principles.
1: So if we start with the Greek world, Aristotle, who was a philosopher in the 4th century BC, said that three things were very important and they had to be in balance. So this is often depicted as a triangle. Ethos, pathos, and logos. So for any speaker to be effective and persuasive, they had to think about logos. Logos is the Greek word for word or argument. And so it's very important for the speaker to think about actually what they say to their audience. But that is not enough. Words alone are never gonna be persuasive. Aristotle said the speaker also has to think about ethos. That is the speaker's credibility. How are they perceived by their audience? What does their previous behavior help them generate in terms of a relationship with their audience? How do they hold themselves and how do they communicate effectively as somebody that the audience can trust? They need to have both logos and ethos. But the third, and I would say the most important, is pathos. Pathos means emotion. So it's very important for a speaker who wants to be effective and persuasive to think about how they connect emotionally with their audience. And this requires some thinking in advance. How do you want your audience to feel at the beginning of your speech or your argument? How do you want them to feel in the middle? How do you want them to feel at the end? How can you build on the emotions that your audience might have already about this topic? And what I see when I look at politicians and broadcasters in the news today is that often they think about logos. Sometimes they think about ethos. They almost never think about pathos.
0: Okay, great. So why don't we move into Cicero?
1: So Cicero was a lawyer and a politician in the first century BCE. He was Roman and he came up with rhetorical methods. What that means is a framework for effective argumentation. And what I see today is that a number of people are still using this framework and it's helping them get what they want. It's helping them be successful. So I'm gonna share with you what Cicero thinks are the key ingredients of a successful argument. First, the opening has to grab people's attention. Put yourselves in their shoes. They need a reason to listen to you. And the opening is your opportunity to grab their attention and keep it. Then you need to say what it is you're actually seeking to prove or outline or convince them of. You have to state what your facts are. What is the point at issue and what is it you're proposing to prove? then is your opportunity to move into your actual argumentation. What are your key points? And how might you amplify the impact of those key points by using some rhetorical devices? The penultimate stage, I would say, is the most important. And again, this is something which I think people today often don't think about enough. The refutatio stage, the refutation It's where Cicero thought it was really important for a speaker to put themselves in the shoes of their opponent, somebody who would take the opposite view to them. And they had to think, as their opponent, what is the best argument against their position? They should name it, they should confront it, and then... They should explain why their position is actually much stronger, still, even taking on board their opponent's strongest argument. And finally, the conclusion of the argument should leave people in no doubt whatsoever that you are entirely persuasive, you have proved your point, your arguments have rung true with plenty of interesting linguistic devices, and your opponent simply cannot come back with any better argument than yours. This is the five-point plan for for delivering a persuasive argument. Cicero developed it and honed it in the first century BCE, and effective orators are still using it today.
0: Wonderful. And so just give us a flavour of what some of those sort of linguistic rhetorical devices might be.
1: So those of you who have read the article that was in The Guardian um, in June might have seen some of these rhetorical devices. Um, There are hundreds of rhetorical devices which were uh, devised in the ancient worlds and are still used today. but I guess I might start with oxymoron. So oxymoron is when two contradictory things are taken in conjunction. So um, a word which is quite popular at the moment is the humble brag. <laughs> that word in itself is an oxymoron. Shakespeare was very fond of these. so in Romeo and Juliet, he said, parting is such sweet sorrow. Well, sweet and sorrow, that's that's an oxymoron. Um, oh, loving hate. Mm, those two words don't naturally go together so you might say what's the point of using oxymoron it's to make the audience sit up and think your brain goes what humble brag what loving hate that makes no sense so it improves audience engagement and gets them to think about what you're saying Another is chiasmus, so for those of you who saw the Guardian article, you'll see that it led with um, Bruce Forsyth, right? So Bruce Forsyth uh, will be known to some listeners, many of you will have no idea who Bruce Forsyth is. Um, He was the host of a game show and his catchphrase was, nice to see you, to see you, nice. So this is the inversion or a mirroring technique for two phrases. Um, John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There's also pleasure is a sin, and sometimes sin is a pleasure. That was Lord Byron's. So you might say, well, what's the point of chiasmus? What's the point of this mirroring technique? I would say, again, it's to amplify audience engagement But also, it's the type of thing which people will take away from what you've said. So they might not remember the details of your argument, they might not remember exactly what your refutation was, but they will remember this catchy catchphrase. Moving on to a personality who I think is familiar probably to most listeners, Greta Thunberg. We often hear her represented as a really great example of a young female orator in the 21st century. I think she's excellent at openings, actually. (laughs) I particularly enjoyed the opening of her speech to the UN Climate Summit in 2019. She said, this is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. What people might not be familiar with is, in the rest of that speech, she kept saying... How dare you? How dare you? She said this four times in what was actually a very short speech. So I would say not only did she have a very successful opening, she was also using the technique known as ekphonesis to say the sound out loud, an emotional exclamation to grab people's attention and to make them feel something. So thinking about pathos, what Greta was, I think, Wanting people to feel was outrage. She wanted them to feel angry. How? dare you! And repeating this simply hammered home her point all the more. Now I've given you three examples and that in itself is an example of another technique called tricolon. So this is known as the rule of three. Um, we see examples such as I came, I saw, I conquered. I'm a classicist, I have to use that example. Um, but Tony Blair also um, is famous for having in one of his speeches said education, education, education. So the thing is once you know about these techniques you can identify them and you can decide is there substance here or is this language being used in order to persuade me and to manipulate my emotions if you don't know these techniques there's the danger that you're caught in the tide of emotion and perhaps not exercising the critical literacy that you could or should be
0: Oh, thank you. And if a listener wanted to go and explore rhetoric a bit more, where would you suggest they started?
1: So there are several books written for a wide public audience on this. So one would be Sam Leith. He wrote From Aristotle to Obama. I think the kind of catchy title of that book is You Talking to Me? (laughs) Um, And I think that's a really good place to look. Um, More recently, a former English teacher called Guy Doza has published a book called How to Apologise for Killing a Cat – and it's it's a really great introduction to the art of rhetoric. I would also say I have two new publications coming out on this topic. Um, one is specifically for teenagers aged 13 to 15 for use in schools and the other is directed to teachers and school leaders about the importance of teaching this in classrooms. So I think there's something out there for everyone.
0: Thank you. Let's make this more interesting as a podcast from Eat Big Fish. I'm Adam Morgan. A big thank you to Ruth, my editor, and Ross, my producer. And we'll be back next week with an episode featuring Sarah Ellis and Helen Tupper from the incredibly successful Squiggly Careers podcast, talking about how they've replaced the idea of the career ladder with something much, much more interesting. Here's a little taste of Sarah and Helen drawings are one of those things that cross languages really really
1: easily so we can be in a room with the people in Spain and they start drawing their confidence gremlins and everybody instantly understands what someone's talking about like my favourite exercise to do when we get to be in a room with people and a lot a lot of the time I'm virtual so I, I love this when we can be in rooms with people is we create a confidence gremlin gallery so everyone gets this really <laughs> large post-it <laughs> note and they draw their confidence gremlins and and you know people have to kind of get over my drawing's not very good well neither are we kind of set the bar pretty low <laughs> with what they look like and then people will draw their confidence gremlin so for example one really memorable one for me is someone drew a dummy because they felt like they were too young and so the, you know people will kind of articulate this fear in very different ways and they stick it up on a wall and people either instantly just get it and go oh gosh me too or they're really intrigued by it and they're like oh tell me more about that
0: see you then